Hi, and welcome to the Social Contract Today podcast, hosted and created by me, Jacqueline Courtney, a financial services compliance professional. This is a podcast where I look at current affairs to question the state of the social contract right now, and whether we, the people, have given government or business or the mysterious powers that be far too much power and influence. Hopefully through this podcast, we can imagine a better, fairer and more transparent society. So if this is your first time listening, please feel free to subscribe so that you can be updated whenever a new episode is released. And also give us a follow at Contract Today on Twitter. Hi, thanks again for joining me and welcome to this week's episode. What a week it's been. Um, I've decided to try out something new, going through some of the week's news which has caught my attention. So starting with COVID-19, which continues to be a raging uh, global pandemic, we've seen this week that Brazil's coronavirus deaths have surpassed 50,000, making them the second country to make such a feat. In Germany, the spread has leapt ahead. India announced that it would that it would be converting 25 luxury hotels into emergency coronavirus centers and cases in the US grew by 15% with with four states experiencing more than hundreds of new cases and despite this public health crisis the leader of the United States Donald Trump is still failing to realize and rise to the role in stopping the virus from multiplying in South Korea there's been reports of a second wave and warnings that a stronger social distancing measure would need to be imposed. Amidst all of this, the UK has continued to further ease its lockdown, announcing earlier this week that by 4th of July, cinemas, galleries and museums would be free to open and in a further move from listening to the science and moving towards nursing the uh, the failing economy. The government has announced a reduction in, dis- in distancing going down from two metres to something a bit more intimate. This has led to key health workers calling for a rapid review of the UK's future preparedness for the next possible wave of the coronavirus. Moving away from the coronavirus a little bit, we've heard about the Reading attacks in which three people were killed um, in an unprovoked attack, which has been treated as a, a related to terror. And in business, a German financial firm known as Wirecard, who have been in hot water ever since whistleblowers told the Financial Times about suspected attempts to fraudulently inflate sales and profits. This week, they faced one of Europe's biggest ever corporate collapses and they filed for insolvency. You might recall that in episode one, I shared that it was in fact my study on corporate collapses which formed my interest in the social contract and made me interested in forging a career in the area of business ethics, compliance and governance. So I imagine I'll revisit the Wirecard scandal at some point. And in other news this week, the government failed to bring in a tough new complaints process that would allow staff to raise complaints against MPs and instead they proposed that MPs should debate and vote. This was actually uh, proposed by Jacob Rees-Mogg. So no surprise there that it wasn't really well thought through. But neither route in terms of debate or vote would allow for any democracy to happen in the process. And it really signalled that the government was trying to protect MPs from having to respect the normal boundaries of what we all observe in, in a normal workplace. 
Fortunately, the proposal was voted down and it was decided that an eight-person independent panel of experts would be formed with the power to impose sanctions on MPs who were in breach of basic norms of workplace misconduct. In other news, well, conservative news anyway, we also heard that Robert Jenrick has faced allegations of expediting a £1 billion property development scheme to help Richard Desmond, a Tory party donor. It got pretty strange this week when text messages and emails were released pointing to quite clearly to there being some bias and impropriety with calls made for transparency over the shoddy practices. Comfortingly, in the midst of a global pandemic, our politicians are still showing that they can still find time to be corrupt. Labour leader Keir Starmer has also been making headlines this week when he overreacted, in my opinion, by sacking Rebecca Long-Bailey from the Shadow Cabinet for retweeting a link to an interview which an actor named Maxine Peake made claims that the tactics used to kill George Floyd had been learned from seminars with Israeli secret services. In more horrifying and frankly sickening news, Two Met police officers were arrested for taking photos of the bodies of two sisters who were tragically killed in northwest London. The officers then shared the photos to a messaging group. So that concludes my news of the week. Please note most of my news sources this week has come from Tortoise Media uh, and their daily Sensemaker emails, which is a concise roundup of the day's news from the self-proclaimed slow news publication and a network that I've been thrilled to join recently. So do check them out. Now, on to disability. I hope you enjoy delving further into the social contract as we today question the place of those with disabilities within the context of the social contract. So, disability. I'll be honest, this is probably the hardest bit of this question to answer because I don't have a disability myself and so I feel I'll be speaking from a really unknowing place in comparison to when I've spoken about race or womanhood, uh, mainly because I have no lived experiences to draw upon and therefore don't feel qualified to discuss disability, but also because there's a certain level of discomfort when it comes to talking about disability. But why is that? Why is it that for the longest time it's always felt, to me anyway, that those with disabilities are routinely forgotten about in our society? Why is it that throughout history, in many cultures, disabled people are kept indoors or not spoken about outside of the home? Why is it okay then that we have reports in today's world, like one published not so long ago by the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, which concluded that it was morally permissible to choose the genes of your unborn child. I mean, that reeks of eugenics and says something about how we view disability. Of course, as a parent, you do always want the best for your child. And I don't know any parent who would happily want their child to live a life of pain. As a parent myself, I would rather be in pain than watch any of my children suffer. However, this reasoning doesn't excuse discussions about genetic engineering for me. It feels as though society is set up in a way that there is always a striving for perfection and lives are devalued should a disability even be slightly present. 
So I really want to understand the root of all of this. Is there something in the fabric of our society that reinforces this? And what role does the state play in facilitating the the negative portrayal of disabled people? As I said earlier, throughout history, disabled people have been treated with disregard and have been seen to be less productive than others. Classical social contract theory has often rejected the disabled as incapable or improper to serve as parties in forging social contracts or having an ability to represent themselves. The 20th century social contract theory has portrayed the disabled as being problematic for justice, and this was mainly due to viewing them through the lens of their contributions. In the account of Distributive Justice, published in 1971 by John Rawls, a philosopher and a staunch social contract theorist, he shared that, as a group, their contributions are thought to be inadequate to offset their needs. In other words, for John Rawls, rational parties choose mutually advantageous arrangements through a process of coming to an agreement about the fundamental principles of justice. In Rawls' view, the idealised society, so the ideal society, has a basic structure consisting of fully cooperating members who throughout their adult lives are able to agree on the structure of their society. For this to be possible, it sounds as though these parties must pretty much be equivalent to each other in terms of their strengths, abilities, intelligence, sensibilities and their status. But this seems flawed, doesn't it? It makes me kind of scratch my head because... And what's even more flawed is that Rawls does not defend the assumption that this idealised society excludes people with, with severe and permanent physical and mental disabilities. In fact, he doubles down and he restricts the participation um, in the original position to those with just two moral powers. One the capacity to form and revise one's own conception of the good and the capacity of the sense of justice, and two, the capacity to act and apply fair terms of cooperation. The problem with the two moral powers in his original position is we cannot fully attribute these powers to people with the most severe disabilities, so it automatically counts them out. They're not in the conversation, and that really troubles me. And then the other issue is with the original position within it, which all parties are thought to be similarly well positioned to convince the others to leave the state of nature by accepting their collectively agreed on ideas regarding the basic tenets of justice. So the theory, the social contract theory in general, requires that there must be some sort of homogeneity of the parties making an agreement to be in a social contract or an agreement with one another. The thing is, no group on earth is entirely homogenous or monolithic, and within any group, no matter how similar people seem, there are always going to be outliers, either as individuals or as subgroups onto themselves. For social contract theorists, those with disabilities are not seen as important for their participation nor their perspectives, not enough to develop any definitive fundamental principle on their behalf. Therein, I think, already lies the answer to the episode that does the social contract apply to the disabled. Very quickly, we can see that it doesn't. In fact, as Silvers and Stein in their 2006 paper 
um, on disability and the social contract. As they noted, the social contract is a process for bargaining of mutual advantage that cannot do justice to the disabled. As in, there is no place for the disabled in the concept of the social contract. They also note, a core idea in the social contract theory is that those who cannot represent themselves in the contracting process will not be respected as parties with any full standing. So the way the social contract theory disregards the humanity of the person, especially when it comes to the disabled, for me is very unsettling, particularly in its failure to afford equitable and just treatment for the disabled. Indeed, both the social contract theory of the 17th and 20th centuries, they're both ill-equipped to bring any justice to persons with disabilities because these frameworks do not allow for their participation in the group of those by whom and for whom political principles are chosen. However, several philosophers have tried to remedy uh, John Rawls's framework by giving people with disabilities a greater and more direct role in the social contracting process. One such response has come from the American philosopher Martha Nussbaum, who in her seminal work made a radical departure from John Rawls's framework. She expressed why at all there, that it is the case that the classical and modernist social contract theory were flawed. She wrote, the exclusion results from the social contract models invoking standards of rationality, moral capacity and ability to produce and thereby to engage in reciprocal cooperation as conditions for participating in designing the principles of justice. And since many persons with disabilities are perceived to be unable to meet these three conditions, they are not included as participants, end quote. What Martha is saying here is that to be participants, the social contract requires that people must be able to choose principles of that society. So in John Rawls's words, they must be able to basically envision that ideal society. But when it comes to those with reasoning impairments, this is really a challenge in that these individuals are precluded from being the subjects of justice because they cannot participate successfully in the contracting process. On the point of theory, in conclusion, as a political theory anyway, the social contract pretty much and quite immorally deprives people with developmental and cognitive disabilities as being objects of justice. Right, so that's the theory. What about in practice? Well, sadly, in America, where the social contract forms the foundations of the USA Constitution, we've seen horrifying rulings such as landmark Supreme Court case of Buck versus Bell in the 1920s. In this case, the court upheld the right of the state colony for epileptics and feeble-minded to sterilise mentally defective individuals. The ruling was justified on the ground that it was in the best interest of both the Commonwealth of Virginia and the sterilised individuals. Namely, that preventing feeble-minded people from menacing society by procreating with other defective state-dependent individuals benefited all those involved. In the judge's reasoning for this ruling, we see, which I'm going to play a snippet of, we see that it is 
it is mostly driven by the traditional social contract theory in terms of its demand for participants of society to operate in a reciprocal manner. The judge in this case, Justice Holmes, was probably the most revered Supreme Court judge in American history, who was thought to be the wisest of the eight judges who made this ruling. Here it is. This is Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who wrote in the majority opinion for the court, the nation must sterilize those who, quote, sap the strength of the state to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. He declared, quote, it's better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Shocking, isn't it? So actually, this ruling ended up inspiring Nazi Germany eugenics. Um, but we'll get on to that later. And so what about the UK? What relationship does the UK have in its history with regards to disability? Well, going through the timelines of history and the development of the social contract, when new explanations were now challenging the idea that God or astrology caused madness and disability, that is from the 1600s to the early 1830s. At this time, as ideas about social contract and the Enlightenment era were developing, people still pretty much lived in a state of nature, in that as a disabled person in society, your life was often harsh and brutal, like everyone else's. And support for people with disabilities was mostly an individual's Christian duty, not necessarily anything to do with the state. As London expanded into a global city, the wealthy members of the city, those same merchants and traders that I talked about in earlier episodes, who voyaged to Africa and beyond and enslaved people, these merchants came back and established new hospitals. In response to these great big displays of wealth came along voluntary asylum movements based on the belief that the disabled could thrive in healthy, clean institutions. So we can see there was some support given to disabled people long before the state came in the picture. For most of the period between the mid-1600s and the early 18th century, disabled people generally lived in their own homes and would marry and support themselves if they could and would receive help from the better off if they could not. However, by the end of the 18th century, the idea was growing that the best place for people who were quote-unquote different was the new specialist buildings being opened up. Though these asylums multiplied well into the 19th century, it was widely agreed that they were something distant to marvel at, but not somewhere many people ever wanted to live. At the turn of the century, attitudes soon hardened, and by 1900, more than 100,000 so-called idiots and lunatics were living in 120 country asylums, with a further 10,000 living in workhouses, places that were intentionally made as miserable as possible to live in. The need for medical intervention then grew at this time, and thus the role of a new type of medical professional was established, the role of the psychiatrist. For them, the belief was widely held that patients could be restored through moral treatment. In other words, using gentle discipline, order and therapy, rather than physical restraint and harsh handling. And the moral treatment ideas were pushed forward by the Quakers. 
Sadly, by the end of the century, they had lost their optimism and had moved towards believing that patients were actually incurable. This perhaps made it easy then to move towards a position of eugenics, which started to appear in the 20th century, most notably with a speech by Julian Huxley, secretary of the London Zoological Society and chairman of the Eugenics Society, who wrote, What are we going to do? Every defective man, woman and child is a burden. Every defective is an extra body for the nation to feed and clothe, but produces little or nothing in return. End quote. Much like their American counterparts, renowned English thinkers such as Julian Huxley started spending copious amounts of time believing that anyone disabled was truly a threat to the nation's health. Their aim then, through eugenics, was to eliminate human physical and mental defects altogether, to build a stronger society, with the plan being to segregate those with disabilities from everyone else in an attempt to perfect the human race. Interestingly, when almost two million newly disabled British ex-servicemen came home from the front lines of World War I, some of these attitudes were forced to change. In fact, society adapted in many ways to support their return. There were offers of plastic surgery and prosthetics, access to physical and mental health treatment, and new housing was built especially for ex-servicemen. But this wasn't quite enough to change attitudes towards those born disabled. The presence of asylums and later on villas or colonies as they were known of up to 60 men and women and children which were created in small rural villages to house the disabled and keep them away from the rest of society. And though disabled children were able to enter schools for the crippled, blind and deaf, as they did progress and sought low-skilled work, it was desperately hard for them to actually find work. Life began to change again for people with disabilities when the war returned in 1939. It seems the only time disabled people ever began to have some sort of legitimacy in the UK was when ex-soldiers returned from war as newly disabled adults. Now with a bigger collective voice, they openly sought for equality. But this really makes me wonder, what would have happened had there been no war? Had there been no Nazi Germany who were putting eugenicist theories such as sterilisation to good use? What if there had been no interruption of injured soldiers during the early English eugenicist movement? Surely that could have spelled the end of disabled people, as we know it, but also spelled the beginning of an unimaginable horror altogether. Are things in our world today any different? I'm interested to know whether our social contract has departed in a more inclusive way for those with disabilities. Have modern political theories and practices moved towards shaping more than just the interests of individuals who are capable of representing themselves? Or is the 17th century philosophical social contract theory and early 20th century eugenics attitudes still very much nourishing political values in modern Britain and beyond? Well, let's look at economics. I'll use gross national product or GNP and welfare as my leading examples, notably the Universal Credit Scheme and the Work Capability Assessments. 
Upon this particular tool, fatal decisions have been made to determine whether people are entitled to support based on their level of capability to work and has led to disabled people wrongly being classed as fit for work and then being denied out-of-work benefits and forced later on to undertake unsafe jobs and some have succumbed to injuries or have ended up taking their own lives in light of such heartless, callous decisions. And so when we look at welfare, it doesn't take long to see that in these cases where the the Department for Work and Pensions have pretty much forced the hand of disabled people to enter work, uh, the possibility of losing benefits, we see that a flawed social contract is seriously at play. One which presupposes that everyone is of the same or similar physical ability. To prevent any further heartache and death, I feel that policy desperately needs to stop painting society with such a broad brush. With most welfare metrics measuring individual productivity through broad-based economic categories such as GMP, there is an undue and disproportionate focus on the general utility of wealth maximisation, which cannot respond to the circumstances of every particular individual in society. This reminds me of when I used to work in HR and I was tasked with monitoring the utilisation statistics of the profit-making population in the firm and then reporting that data to the firm's partners. It was based upon these utilisation stats that bonuses were paid, that salaries were increased and managed exits were established. Looking back on it, it was god-awful work because none of this and none of these people were the same or had remotely the same circumstances, I'm sure. And yet they were being judged by the same broad metric of how many hours they'd spent in a month on work. There was little consideration in the fact that there could have been a more productive employee showing low-level utilisation versus a less productive employee with a high utilisation but not really doing that much. Yet still, value was placed on the one with the highest utilisation and little attention was paid to well-being and individual circumstances that would have played a role in their utilisation stats. People are not extensions of one another. And so it is wholly incorrect to not make adjustments. And when it comes to those with disabilities, it is plain to see that the less adjustments and considerations made, the higher the danger of neglecting those with a distinct set of needs. Let's hear from someone with a lived experience now. One half of the duo Triple Cripples. Here it is. What does what does progress look like then? How do we improve things, whether it be within our communities, whether it be within the medical field? How do we make things better for Everyone. black women, disabled Everyone. people, everybody? Well, the thing is, we say this all the time, if you make sure that the people who are the most vulnerable in your society are catered for, everyone else benefits. Yeah. Everyone, literally. Nobody no will be able to fall through the gaps. Exactly. And so what we really need to do is destroy white supremacist patriarchy capitalism that's the Damn answer <laughs> i said it yeah she said it we'll start tomorrow mm-hmm. we'll burn all the banks no guys i'm joking no ah, <laughs> i do enjoy that episode um and I, i'll be sure to link that in the show notes that is the bbc sounds podcast no country for young women which is hosted by sadia Azmat and monty onanuga they're both comedians and uh, they their podcast is centred around them, their lives as two women of colour. 
I can't contest what the triple cripple girl said, because that would probably be the ideal solution just to wipe out white supremacist indoctrines. But I'd add that it might be worthwhile looking at each disabled person on a case by case basis and appreciate that each disabled person has a unique potential and these people should be given adequate resources to further develop their potential towards being brought as close as possible to the majority of society. This idea was developed by Martha Nussbaum, the philosopher I referred to earlier, and is a viable approach to levelling the playing field in a way that the social contract cannot and could potentially enable people with disabilities to flourish. However, there are some limitations to uh, Martha Nisbam's approach. Given that it cannot cater for those disabled people, it may not be possible to develop their potential to a level as close to the majority. And as an approach, despite the good intentions behind this idea, it could end up leaving disabled people who cannot assimilate in this way in a dangerous position. But if society is to support disabled people in this way, there needs to be the most effective distribution of resources to achieve the fairest possible distribution of capabilities. Martha Nisbem likens society's role to disabled people to other domains such as our responsibility to non-human animals and our responsibility to other nations. In the domain of non-human animals, Nussbaum addresses the obligation to distribute resources to provide sentient animals with a decent species-appropriate life. And in the domain of nations and their relations with one another, she addresses the obligations of wealthier nations to distribute resources that enable citizens of poorer nations to flourish at an adequate level. It seems that the people of the 1600s to the early 18th century had it right. They knew back then it was at the very least a duty of care that one should have for the disabled within society. But somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten that. The government, the UK government that is, has been widely criticised for seeing disabled people as an afterthought. From transportation issues to the employment gap, there has been no shortage of examples that our government truly does see disabled people as an afterthought. Without a full commitment to making worthwhile adjustments to allow disabled people to take part in society, disabled people have become somewhat institutionalised and stuck. Samantha Rank, an actress who happens to be disabled, quells the common misconceptions about disabilities. I think there's a stereotype that disabled people don't want to get out and do work that we're quite happy to sit at home and be on benefits. And that's not the case. You know, I've got a degree, I used to work in a school. So I think we need to get rid of this stereotype that disabled people are quite happy to be at home and, and not do anything with their lives. We do, we do have aspirations like everyone else. Disabled people are twice as likely to be unemployed as non-disabled people. By removing references to his disabilities, one disabled man found that he suddenly became more employable. This lack of acceptance of disabled people, of course, leads to depression and psychological symptoms. It begs the question, what are employers afraid of? Why is there such a large disability employment gap? And even when in employment, disabled workers still face challenges in getting the additional support they need. This is no less the case for our politicians such as Marsha D. Cordova, former Shadow Minister for Disabled People, 
and the current Shadow Secretary of State for Women and Equalities. Take a listen to this excerpt from an, a BBC Radio 4 interview. Perhaps a natural choice as Shadow Disability Minister. But since then, the struggle she's had to get the support to do her work, which she feels she needs, has shocked and surprised her. Earlier this year, she went public about it to fellow MPs. Unfortunately, obtaining the support and the additional support that I need in this place to operate and function as an MP has been challenging. I'm having to continuously fight for additional support. When I'm being told by IPSA, we know you have additional needs, but we're not going to support those additional needs. It has made it very difficult for me. I should be here. The people of Battersea have sent me here to represent them. I shouldn't be fighting the authorities here to get the additional support that I need. The IPSA, Marsha refers to there, is the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, a non-party body which counts administering a disability assistance budget amongst its responsibilities. When she talked to us just a few days after being elected, Marsha could already see the kinds of difficulties and pressures the job would throw up. The sheer weight of paperwork she'd have to deal with in a form she could read. Just navigating the notoriously winding and rambling nature of buildings designed in the middle of the 19th century and the need to keep track of constituency cases as well as the relentless parliamentary timetable. So I asked her, what's gone wrong with your support? This year, IPSA got in touch with me to inform me that some of the support that I was getting was made in error. I had funding support for an additional member of staff and it was that funding that was then stopped so therefore I had to let that member of staff go. So what effect has that had? Well it's, it's had a huge impact on me being able to carry out my shadow ministerial responsibilities. I obviously am still trying to do my very best in representing disabled people but it's not been easy. In another vein, I also asked IPSA to take into account the additional costs I would have due to having to print papers in larger fonts and obviously it's going to cost me more to, you know, run my office. And that's because you need large yeah. print. For example, if I'm printing a speech that I'm going to have to read in the chamber, it would be printed in up to font 46. That's obviously lots more paper and lots more ink. So I wanted them to take that into consideration. And that's what they said they wouldn't do. They have now, I'm happy to say, conceded on that and will now be allocating me additional funding for printing costs. I made that speech on International Women's Day this year. And it wasn't until then that IPSA actually did get back in touch with me and wanted to talk about a way forward. Prior to that, it pretty much was a clear-cut no and that's it. How do you say that this has prevented you from doing your job? Well, Peter, to say that it's been a challenge and it has been quite a struggle would be an understatement. Having to battle with IPSA to almost prove that I required this support, going through the process of IPSA wanting to understand the nature of the support I required and then, in my opinion, 
placing some unreasonable demands, let's just say, on what they required in order to look at whether they would provide me with extra support was hugely disappointing for me because you expect authorities to have a clear defined policy in how they would support anybody with a disability. We invited IPSA, that's the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, to comment on your concerns. They told us we support comprehensive assessment of the specific needs of MPs and their staff so that any reasonable adjustments in line with the Equality Act can be identified and quickly funded to help MPs in their jobs. And they say IPSA has an uncapped disability assistance fund for costs and reasonable adjustments that are reasonably attributable to a disability of an MP. I'm really pleased that IPSA have given you guys the statement that they have and I look forward to hearing from them as to whether they will be funding the additional support that I've Hmm. asked for. Have you been given reasons why your applications for funding have been either turned down or reversed? All Ipsa told me in relation to the support for the extra worker was that the application was approved in error and that's that. So you don't know mm. what the error was. Mm. Ipsa has a disability fund in which they spent about £120,000 last year and on the face of it people will think that paper and ink can't make a very big dent in that. Do you have any understanding of why this has been such a problem? Again, I just think it's people making decisions, but ultimately what needs to happen is they need to have a comprehensive policy in place, which it sounds like they're beginning to do, on how they support disabled members. So if our elected politicians who happen to have disabilities working in the seat of power cannot receive the support they need, as in the case of Marsha D. Cordova, what hope is there really for anyone else? And perhaps this maybe goes beyond the state. Perhaps there is a fundamental flaw in our society. If our elected politicians who happen to have disabilities working in the seat of power cannot receive the support they need, as in the case of Marsha D. Cordova, then what hope is there for anyone else? Perhaps this goes beyond the state. Perhaps there's a fundamental flaw in our society with regards to bias against race, gender and disability, all of which I've touched on in previous episodes, all of which Marsha D. Cordova embodies. She is black, she is a woman and she is disabled. These intersectionalities matter, as do the intersectionalities of those in the seat of power, who are mostly white, who are mostly male and mostly able-bodied. But as we know from the basis of the social contract as we learned in episode one, It is a societal agreement, and if the government or authority at hand is not meeting our needs, we have every right to let that old way go and usher in a new one. Is it time we rewrote who the social contract applies to? So for this week's recommendations, I'd like to recommend you checking out the groundbreaking Triple Cripples. These two ladies are fantastic and they teach me so much around this space and they're really a laugh as well. Um, So I'm sure you'll, you'll get a real kick out of listening to them and their podcast, which is also called Triple Cripples. And I'd also really like for people to check out 
the uh, story that I referenced, the case that I referenced, Buck versus Bell, it's quite a difficult case to read because it's so sad and so upsetting that just the amount of people, the sheer number of people who uh, ended up being sterilised because of that ruling in, in the 1920s, it's uh, one of the most famous cases on sterilization and as I said in the episode it is that case that inspired the Nazis I think when we think about the Nazis and Nazi Germany and the things and the horrors they committed we think that they just sort of came up with it themselves but actually that the link com comes all the way back to the UK in that the Nazis were inspired by the Americans who you know in this landmark ruling and actually the the way in which the eugenics theories ended up in America was directly linked to the UK. So it's, you know, there were people in the UK and England who were demanding that we, we, we implement eugenics and uh, have that as an approach at all in our society to uh, weed out the weak in, 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 in the race. Um, and so it's really funny that our history has been changed to uh, fit this narrative that actually the the British fought against the Nazis and opposed everything that they believed in. It just isn't the case. It isn't the case that uh, that, that there wasn't any that there weren't any synergies or similarities. So it's really important that we we do some more learning about this. As I was. I was really shocked to come across this information. Um, so I hope you enjoy those two very opposing uh, recommendations, but very interesting recommendations. And I hope you enjoy them nonetheless. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, I'll be back with another interesting episode where you can learn more about the social contract with regards to another concept um, that affects our society. So I've been Jacqueline Courtney. This has been the Social Contract Today podcast. Thank you for listening and do join me again.